Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. I am here with Dominique Miel. Um, she has written a book called Damsel in Distressed, My Life in the Golden Age of Hedge Funds. I am very excited to discuss this book with Dominique because her career on Wall Street and on the buy side somewhat overlaps with my coverage of hedge funds. I started covering hedge funds in 2004 and uh, have kind of done so in some capacity ever since. But she was a lot closer to the action inside a hedge fund at Canyon Partners uh, in LA, right? But even before that, uh, she, she had worked in Wall Street going back to the early 90s. So you have some very interesting views on the hedge fund industry in general, and especially what it was like uh, from a woman's perspective. And so maybe I'll just let you start and talk a little bit about that and about your book, and then we can take it from there. Sure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, I guess, yes, one reason for writing the book is that, as you know, there are very few women in hedge funds. And while there are uh, probably more at the junior level, they become really rare when it comes to uh, the, the senior level, particularly on the investing side. You'll find more on the marketing and the uh, business development side. And so, you know, part of why I think there are a few women is that there are a few women speaking about the career, and that means there are a few examples of successful uh, careers, which I consider mine to be. And uh, it, it's, there, there's very little to aspire to. So that's, you know, I wanted it to put out there a female voice on that career. And the second point is, I think the, the years that you and I have experienced covered from the inside or the outside in the hedge fund business have been really critical in the building of the industry. Certainly, it's been um, the growth period. If you think of now the hedge fund business as any industry with uh, an S curve, I think we're probably on the flat part of the S and that the 20 years from the late 90s, early 2000s uh, to today have been the exponentially growing part of the business. And that is particularly interesting in any industry, uh, but specifically for me in the hedge fund, because you have, you've had a lot of innovation, a lot of transformation of the business. And I wanted to explain those transformations to the layman out there in, you know, in a context that's 
hopefully lots of people can relate to, can understand in a light tone because most hedge fund books are pretty mm. are pretty dry and uh, you know make it a, an entertaining if possible mm. read and a short read that's yeah. you know there's no other quality to the book at least it's short so. <laughs> brevity is a friend of of yes that and, and it is certainly entertaining i can vouch for that and you bring up some interesting points here right off the bat and this is my first question to you then is do you think that the hedge fund industry does have a future? Because you speak about this a little bit, and there's a quote here from the very early part of your book. You say, that is the problem with hedge funds. They are an unstable business model. And you cite a, a number that based on your own research, I believe it's just more anecdotally, but still 9% of hedge fund close each year. It seemed, I, I thought it might actually be higher than that, but but. The point is, and this is, in fairness, this is not just hedge funds. The whole active management industry in general has you know, lost a lot of sway recently over passive investing and indexes and, and, and such things like that. So yeah, so but you do think here that the hedge fund industry does have a future? I think it has a future. Uh, I think we are in desperate need of innovation. Um, I think... If I um, reflect on my own career, my own job, 20 years after I joined, everything had changed uh, around hedge funds. The markets, correlation between assets, uh, availability of data, regulation, information, and particularly the size and the scale of hedge funds from you know, 300 billion or so to probably close to 4 trillion. And so the real question is, of course, there's, there are a lot of hedge funds that disappear, but then again, that happens in any industry that there's a fair amount of you know, small companies that are left behind. The real question is the value proposition of hedge funds was really to outperform the market, mm. to produce that alpha. Um, and for that, investors, at least original investors, were willing uh, and happy to pay very high fees. And that was the deal, that was the handshake. So the real question at this um, juncture to me is, is the value proposition still sellable or is there a better mousetrap? Mm. And if you're gonna charge the same fees, slightly lower, I think they're generally- Yeah, no, uh, they are. No. They're, they're generally fading. Uh, but are you able to deliver the alpha that your your pitch is all about? And if you look at the hedge fund business in general, if you were to aggregate those assets as in one giant hedge fund, it has not outperformed the market, not systematically, not consistently. Sure, some hedge funds outperform the markets some of the times. But I don't think anyone is smart enough or nimble enough to invest one year with Apollo and the next year with York and then the third with, um, you know, 0.72. People generally have long allocations to hedge funds. They don't change the name that often. And that means that if on average hedge funds don't outperform, then um, there is something that needs to be examined uh, between the price of hedge funds and the value they deliver. I do think that is uh, something that is uh, is going to change. 
I what don't is, know how, mm-hmm. but it has to. Yeah. What, what has changed, would you say, in, in the 20 years, be it amount uh, around reporting returns or anything else that, that might make it uh, more difficult to, to produce alpha now than back in the 90s? I, I can think of two important factors. The first one is the sheer scale of hedge funds. Mm. Um, so if I think of my own um, piece of business, which was distressed and stressed, and I think of, you know, some of the best periods or the best returns, uh, they were right after the dot-com and telecom crisis. Yes. When, when there were oodles of companies in bankruptcy and the distressed area produced 20, 22, 23% return in several years. And you look at the size of hedge funds chasing those bankruptcies, the amount of bankruptcies dwarfed the amount of capital allocated to it. And it's so we're back to, you know, it's a simple problem of of supply and demand. There was a ton of opportunities for very few hedge funds. Mm -hmm. You go to today and my impression or my belief is that it's the other way around. You have, uh, the hedge fund business that's literally become the market. Uh, it is enormous. And so you have an enormous pool of capital chasing few opportunities. When you have, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 billion in a hedge fund, it's really difficult to find uh, a lot of good ideas, a lot of differentiated good ideas, and large enough to put that much capital to work. So that's. Mm. Um, that's one uh, problem and one great hurdle to producing alpha and producing mm. those. The other one I would say is information and data, how readily available it is and how cheap it is. So again, going back to my you know, own neighborhood of stress and distress, back in the early days, it was very expensive and very difficult to get uh, bankruptcy court data. There was only one service called Pacer, you had to pay by the page. It was uh, very difficult to get, not to go even further back onto uh, Reg FD and all this disclosure, but essentially it was a lot easier when not everybody had the same information. Once when we had some information advantages, it sure was easier to exploit the, uh, the market and its inefficiencies. But to a very large extent, um, you know, how quickly you can get the info, how available it is, how the fact that every company has a website, everything's posted there, real time, including bankruptcy documents, um, that makes the, you know, the market a much uh, more even field type of opportunity. And so if you don't have an edge or you don't have the data edge, presumably the alpha is a lot harder to produce. Mm-hmm. What, what about the fact that we've had 12 straight years and counting of, you know, you mentioned alpha, well, the beta has been, been there, you know, for, we haven't had, you mentioned distress. We haven't had a real distress cycle in 12 years. Right. And what about that? The fact that every year, pretty much just about stock markets have been going up these last 12 years and that, you know, that's, that's your beta. So, um, yeah, what do you make of that? It's certainly more difficult when the market 
keeps on going up. And it's not only that it keeps on going up, it's also that the volatility has been very muted. And you can point to periods of um, increased volatility, but unfortunately, or for, unfortunately for hedge funds, fortunately for investors, those periods have been exceedingly short. Mm. So if I think of the last bouts of disruption and volatility, certainly uh, March 2020 sure. and, the, and the COVID, before that um, end of 2016, uh, the oil crisis and shale industry crisis. Before that, maybe 2010, I think, 2011, taper tantrum. The problem with those is that they've been a few months long. Mm -hmm. And again, for hedge funds that are very large, it's not like you can sit in cash and wait uh, for the opportunity and then within two, three, four months, because that's essentially what the COVID crisis lasted, yeah. reposition yourself. You just can't. Um, so that's actually good for smaller hedge funds, but for very established, very large funds, it's just not enough time to capitalize on those, uh, on those bouts of, of disruptions. Mm -hmm. So it is, it is another difficulty for sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and also in 2008, 2009, hedge funds didn't really do that great. They didn't really protect invest. Some did, but they didn't really protect investors all that much. Um, maybe because they already were that big and maybe because it was such a historical crisis that the correlations everywhere went to zero or one or whatever. And, and um, it up, up, upended a lot of them. I'm curious, um, I mentioned reporting before and, and reporting returns, and this is something that there's been a mystique around hedge funds, at least there was, when I started reporting on this industry back in the early 2000s. And it was hard to get any real information on them. As, as you said, there were, information just wasn't there. And it was very difficult to get any returns on any of these guys. And that seemed to, at some point, uh, I think that seemed to kind of change a little bit. But anytime we did, it was like a huge scoop for us. It's like when we got like some like, oh, wow, here's what Bill Ackerman's been doing or whatever. And since then, it seems that uh, a, a guilty party of this, of producing these every month, like when you have, when a hedge fund has a down month, you'll see these screaming headlines, you know, so-and-so lost 1% last month, right? And uh, again, the, like the, Hedge funds don't actually report this. There's no like, you know, lipper or anything, but it's somehow it's, it's much more available. It leaks out much more very easily and it's all out there. And as a result, you have all this screaming and crying about hedge funds under performance on a short-term basis that is maybe not entirely fair. Um, what, what do you think about all that? I think you're right on, on many points and you had a lot of points in that. The first is that, uh, the industry was very secretive, mm. were very little known back 20 years ago, even I would say pre-2008. Sure. And one of the reasons was that our investors were largely wealthy individuals making decisions for themselves and uh, who had a, a strong understanding that the deal was high risk, high return. Mm. And so a negative month or a negative year was, uh, while extremely unpleasant, neither something to write a headline about, nor 
particularly surprising because you could have a 30, 40% return the, the next year. Mm -hmm. That has completely been uh, changed and turned on its head. Uh, number one, the industry is very well covered. It is now, I would think, and I'd be curious as to your opinion, but an institutionalized uh, industry and one of the uh, different asset classes like, uh, you know, of asset management, one among others. Um, two, obviously, the investor base has totally changed and is now largely institutions, uh, pensions, endowments, insurance companies, family offices, but very large. And the deal has changed in that um, they're really looking more for safety than return. They say they look for return, but my feeling and from you know practicing them for many years and pitching to them is that uh, it's more safety than real return with the associated risk. The other is that those organizations many times do not make the allocation decision directly, but use allocators, advisors, um, uh, brokers, uh, consultants. And so when you do that and you sort of outsource the risk profile, you're going to tend to diminish your appetite for risk and increase your appetite for safety because the third party is never incentivized to uh, take um, large risks. They're always incentivized to keep their job and advise and recommend the large funds that, uh, you know, as the saying goes, they're not going to get fired for recommending even on, on a down year. So all this has meant that um, you have more headlines, that, uh, you know, outlandish returns uh, up and down are less, uh, less frequent. Um, and yes, you see headlines on, you know, so-and-so lost 1% one month, uh, which is probably unfair and, to be honest, uh, hardly relevant. Right. And then you see the other way around, the number of headlines on Bloomberg, on uh, you know different financial organizations about hedge funds are back. Because uh. in 2020, they beat some, it's not even a lot, it's you know some categories of hedge funds beat the market. And that, that is a fact, right? But how interesting or relevant is that, as you say, not very, really, in yeah. at least not very for the investors in hedge funds. Sure. Like it neither indicate the future nor the past. Yeah, these are, these are all really interesting points. And it begs the question, you know, what is the value proposition now that a hedge fund could do if it's not beating the market? Which, and again, this isn't just hedge funds. This is like, I mean, you've seen the statistics, right? I mean, for an active manager to beat the market, it's very unusual to do it consistently and legally is pretty much unprecedented. But so yeah, it so is. What, is, what is, what can you do? So, you know, then you got to ask yourself, why are uh, investors still allocated to hedge funds? And there are different reasons, some good, some bad. Um, one good reason is diversification. That's, that makes sense, right? But 
how good is the diver- diversification? That's yeah. one important question. And how much should you pay? How much should one pay for diversification? Is it one and a half and 20? Mm. Not completely clear. Uh, another reason is a lot of uh, CIOs are paid to beat the index. And so the, uh, and that was explained to me by a very uh, smart, very honest CIO. The one way to make sure you're not going to beat the index is to buy the index. So mm-hmm. you got to give it a shot. And to give it a shot, you have to invest some in alternative asset management, right? Because otherwise, you're just not going to uh, hit your, your bonus target ever. Mm. Uh, so that's, well, mm-hmm. yeah, but what if it's not alternative? What, what if you're just picking stocks? That's not, there's nothing alternative about that. You could be picking stock, I think, for a large uh, school endowment, insurance, pension, who's outsourcing big categories of asset classes. They're not going to pick stocks. They're right. picking okay. between long only, bonds, you know, loans, hedge funds, private equity, macro, crypto, etc. So in those large buckets, um, you know, hedge funds and as an alternative, uh, no, I know, but what if the hedge, all the hedge fund is doing is picking stocks? You know, that's not really alternative. It's it's not. It's not. Yeah. Mm. So maybe the maybe the answer is to be you have to be a little bit more esoteric and and willing to take on risk. There are some studies that I've seen. I'm sure you've seen them too about new hedge funds, younger hedge funds outperforming the bigger ones because of all these issues that we talked about. One of which is is risk appetite, frankly. Um, you know, if you, if you're, and if you're managing a billion dollars, you can live very well off of the management fee. You don't need to produce any alpha really, as long as you just keep the people on board. Right. Whereas if you're brand new and you're, you manage 50 million or whatever, hundred, even a couple hundred, and you know, you're going to be a lot more ambitious to, and willing to take on the risk that is necessary to get the high returns. So maybe that's something, I don't know. It definitely is something I was, I could think of two avenues you were going down when you said young hedge funds first off with the increase in regulation unless you have a billion it actually is very hard uh, at least in in credit it's very hard to make a solid living without uh that size but certainly there are two reasons why a young uh or smaller let's call it smaller hedge funds would do well one is that risk appetite you're talking about. Every decision is a make or break. You got to make it. You got to leave no stone unturned. Um, the other very important is you're nimble. You can be all cash one month, all invested the mm-hmm. next. You can trade very actively. Once you get into double digit billion, there aren't that many cap structures that provide that liquidity. And liquidity mm-hmm. is a very important factor in in return and your ability to time. So if you think of our conversation, distressed or volatility bouts are shorter, you need to be to be able to capitalize on them. So size, you know, extra size is kind of your enemy. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Then another thing you uh, that I thought you were going to say that's beginning to interest me, more anecdotal, I wish I had data, but I don't, at least not yet, is young hedge fund as in young management. 
Right. If, if I think of the management of all the very established, very successful, known hedge funds, you know, from Neon Cooperman to David Tepper to, you know, um, all, all those guys. First of all, they're all guys. Yeah. Second, you know, they're kind of in their 60s, mm-hmm. if not 70s, if not 80s. And so you got to, I started thinking, even if they're very sharp, they have the experience, what risk profile does a 70-year-old person have versus a, you know, when they started a 20, 30, 40-year-old, right? And it seems to me that whether you're consciously seeking it or not, as you age, your hunger, your risk profile sort of shifts from capital preservation to capital what, what return proliferation or, or growth, right? It's sort of, it would seem to me that it is a human evolution that as you get older, you're a little bit more timid. And that would play in what you just said, which is, you know, it, it, it's harder to make it. Um, yeah. when, when you're, you're leading a very large sort of tanker in, uh, and you've, you've done it for 34 years. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Uh, okay. I want to take a, a quick break here and come back and ask you some more questions, Dominique. Um, but let's first uh, let our, our sponsors be heard. And if you don't, if you're a premium subscriber, you're not going to get a break. So you don't touch the dial. To become a premium subscriber, check out the website contrarianpod.substack.com. We'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. Dot tech. All right, welcome back, everybody, here with uh, Dominique Miel. Um, and Dominique, this is the segment of the show where we ask our guests a little bit more about themselves and how they arrived at their current station in life. We touched on it. You had a, a pretty long career, about a quarter century, it looks like, on uh, on Wall Street. Um, <laughs> yeah, but but I, I, I laugh because you're covering your eyes. It does. It does. It has been a, a long time. But yeah, so, so curious about, about all that and how you came to investing in the first place and how you came to write the book. So talk to us about that. Okay. Yeah, I guess my cringing when you said a quarter century <laughs> does not translate in a podcast, but it was <laughs> definitely there. Uh, and it's, uh, it's true. It's true. Um, so how I came to, to investing, well, it was serendipitous, I would say. And I think that 
it matters uh, for me to say it because the public or, and, or the media has this uh, well-scripted uh, notion that a hedge fund manager is somebody who started trading at a very young age, you know, out of grammar school, they were already trading baseball cards or yeah. uh, uh, looking at arbitrage between, you know, lemon and lemonade. And that was certainly not uh, my case. I grew up and did my studies in Paris. And then I did take a finance job in New York as my first, uh, my first gig, really not because it was in finance, but because it was in New York. Mm. And I wanted to travel and see the world and leave my uh, place of birth. So I did that and then joined Lehman Brothers, again, uh, you know, more coincidentally than anything else, um, which, by the way, life as an investment banker mm. is, is a, a fairly miserable experience, at least at the very low level uh, where I was, uh, which led me to go to business school. And it really is in business school after a couple of classes about portfolio management and risk management that I realized this would be a really interesting job. And not particularly because I love math or I love deals, but really because uh, of the creative nature mm. of the job. And I, I don't think it's something that you hear enough um, about the job, uh, certainly about distressed uh, and restructuring. It is a highly creative job that uses imagination, that uses sort of the ability to connect points it's uh, very much a game of strategy where you look at the capital structure and the different layers, loans, bonds, vendors, um, uh, equity, obviously, maybe there are people suing and they have claims. What is their position? What is it that they want to do? What kind of restructuring do they want to drive? What is their end game? And what is yours? And how do you position yourself vis-a-vis those opponents because there's going to be a pie you're going to slice it in a restructuring document that will be blessed by the bankruptcy judge and voted upon by the different parties as to how you divide the value of that pie Mm. and uh, it is sometimes a matter of picking the right security or securities sometimes it's a matter of designing or devising uh, a plan that makes sense that will, you know, uh, get everybody together to vote yes. Sometimes it calls for creating a new financial instrument upon emergence that is going to give you upside or give you over time a bigger uh, piece of the pie. So that sort of ingenuity um, I found uh, very attractive. And frankly, that's what kept me in the job for, for 20 years. Interesting. Uh, and, and again, it's not, you know, that's not the typical image, I think, of a hedge fund manager mm. that, that is portrayed, maybe because it doesn't sell, maybe because it's not cool, and it's a lot cooler to be, you know, a ruthless mm. deal maker and a magician with math and numbers. Maybe that's a better image. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but that leads me to your second question as to why I, read, yeah. I wrote the book. I wrote the book because of that general lack of 
a voice in my mind in the um, in the in the books that I saw around. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. If I think of books in finance that I really liked, they're really few and far between. Mm. I love Liar's Pokers. Mm. I thought it was just a joy to read, mm. fun, honest, authentic. And I thought, what if a woman wrote Liar's Poker mm. about the hedge fund world? Um, could it, you know, uh, inspire, inspire is, is, a, is a very big word, but could it give some women, some outsiders, because I'm not only a woman, I'm a foreigner, hmm. uh, the, uh, you know, the impetus to try their luck at the job of investing. And hmm. if the answer is yes, I thought that was a worthwhile effort. Hmm. This is something that com- comes up here on this podcast a lot, and partly because I've tried to book women for the show. And my original idea was to alternate between a man and a woman, and that quickly became uh, unfeasible. And... <laughs> So when I do have a have somebody, and so it's not by lack of trying that I have met women on. That's my point, right? And so when I do ha- have them on, I often like to ask. And, and there's another thing here, which is the listeners of this podcast, by the way, according to Spotify at least, are ninety percent nine zero male. <laughs> okay, so I it's I'm wondering why that is, and I, I do like to run this by all my women guests. And so what, what are your views on that? Why are there so few women in finance? Why are they seemingly not invest, interested in investing or are they, and, and it's maybe they just aren't listening to my podcast, but 90%, I mean, come on. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, your thought of alternating makes me <laughs> laugh because I know I, it reminds me of the countless business dinners that I had during my career where, you know, when you have a dinner, you usually say, Hey, should we do one woman, one, one boy, one girl? And I would always make that joke and be, you know, 12 men and me. Um, It was funny at the time. Anyways, why is that? It's look, it's not a simple question. So I, I think the answer is complicated. I think there are, if you think of the equation as women wanting to join and hedge funds wanting to hire them. I think there are issues on both sides. Women uh, not joining, and I've had that comment from colleagues of mine who say, I want to recruit women, but I can't find any. I think one problem is, um, as I said earlier, the job is not very well advertised. There is, you know, my book is the first book by a woman about a woman in hedge fund unless there are more voices and voices that are positive about the experience and give an example of what you can do how you can enjoy your job how it can be extremely lucrative which i'm not shy about saying um i think it's not very attractive right if if you only see white men in the job in the media in books in uh on tv then as a woman, as a foreigner, as a minority, it's maybe not even a job that that registers on your radar screen. Mm. So I think we need more voice. Certainly Kathy Wood is, you know, up there, vocal. And, um, 
And I'm, my hope is that we're going to see and hear more voices, and that's going to be the impetus for more minority uh, and, and, and women uh, candidates to, to, um, to be wanting to try the job and to be on your podcast. Mm. And then the other side of the coin is why are hedge funds not uh, hiring? Um, I think one reason is, um, look, the business model has worked and worked so well for so long. Why would you change it? I, mean, I think it's mm. human nature. If you have a winning team, why would you change it? And unless and until internally they are convinced that their performance will be better with a diverse investment team, it's just not a lot that's going to mm. happen. Um, what you're seeing now is investors making a very large push for uh, for diversity in the investment team. So right. it started with David Swenson. One of the last things he did before um, his untimely death was to tell the managers um, of his large endowment that they'll be weighted on diversity in the investment team. Mm. And he... As you know, he was a very powerful voice, and I think it's only a matter of time, and it's happening already, before all institutional investors not only ask about diversity, but require it and grade it and um, you know, put it as a factor just as important as uh, reporting and compliance and, and uh, you know, structure and, and all those um, factors that you want hedge funds to have. Mm. Um, so I'm I'm hopeful, but it certainly takes time mm. uh, that the the face of the the business has changed. That uh, internally more research will uh, prove. I mean, it's been absolutely undeniable that, for example, diverse corporate boards are more effective, mm -hmm. make more decisions, and companies with diverse management are more. Uh, profitable. Um, the the research in in asset management, you know, I've I've looked at a lot of research from my book. There is some, but it's a little old. It's a little outdated. So we need more people looking at that issue. But you know, once if and when the hedge funds are convinced that a diverse investment team will produce better returns, they're profit oriented, or that their investors are not going to stick with them or invest more money unless they have a diverse team. I think that these are very important uh, incentives. Yeah, no question, no question. But that's all top down. What about the, from the bottom up? I mean, you yourself said you weren't interested in, in finance. You, you just took the job because it was in New York. I mean, whatever. I mean, a lot of people do that, male and female. But but what? Um, and what about the, the statistics that I mentioned about? 90, maybe it is just my podcast. That ninety percent of the listeners are men. Or is why aren't more women, or are they? And I don't know it. Interested in investing. And young women too, or maybe that's changing. I'm hoping that it's changing. Although, I mean, we are in a in such an extremely interesting investment for stocks uh, period with the retail mm -hmm. trading on exploding, and I, I think that's probably here to stay. So, in a way, that gives me hope for women to invest. In a way, I have to catch myself because. If I think of the Robin Hood crowd, I'm guessing that it's heavily male-oriented, that it's the bro so, yeah. community. Yeah. Um, 
I think, again, it's a matter of, uh, you know, persisting and providing uh, female voices. And I think your example, your effort at, um, at putting women in your podcast are going to bring more women, right? I mean, if it's sort of a vicious circle or a virtuous circle, both at the same time, as you get more female guests, I'll think, I think I would imagine you'll get more female listeners. As you get more female listeners, you will get more female wanting to be part of the, of the podcast. Mm-hmm. I, I really do believe yeah. in that, in that circle. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. All right, Dominique. Um, now, lastly, maybe let's, if we could talk a little bit about the current state of the market. I know you, obviously your background is in, in distress. We were saying there hasn't really been a distress cycle. Um, in general, where do you view markets right now in terms of risk taking, risk appetite, the economic cycle and things like that? Well, I'm not a macro person, mm. so you know you got to take what I say with a grain of salt. And again, I'm a distressed investor, so I tend to be, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, have a very cautious view on those um, mega bull cycle. Um, I'm not in stocks. I don't understand valuations today. Certainly, I have no competence in uh, in putting valuations on uh, super high growth companies, but there are companies out there that uh, are clearly overvalued, and particularly uh, meme stocks um, by traditional measures. And you know, for example, AMC is actually a company that I followed for years, literally decades, because if you remember the theater, the movie exhibitors, as we used to call them, went through a a bankruptcy cycle around 2001, 2002, as they were building multiplex megaplexes and replacing multiplex. The the audience wasn't there. They were spending CapEx. They just all went under and, you know, spurred a, a wave of consolidation. And then AMC was bought by a private equity, and then they went public. The IPO actually took quite a few tries because they had a botched IPO. Valuation was too high. I can, you know, confidently say that the company is not worth sixty-five times EBITDA, whatever the, value, the valuation that it trades at. The problem is, um, it seems to me that stocks are now valued on on a different paradigm that it, that it used to be, meaning a stock is not only a piece of equity in a company, it's also a game. And a game has a, an economic utility, how much fun it provides. Like when you go to the casino, you are actually paying the casino company to have fun. Just like when you go to Disneyland, you're paying to ride and to have fun. So those stocks, probably Tesla and AMC for sure, and GameStop and Hertz at some point, the investor is paying a premium to be part of a community that has fun. Mm-hmm. My problem is that no one's actually been able to quantify and uh, theorize what that premium is. And it's quite large, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it really is a disconnect between... Um, between the reality of the cash flow and the the stock trading. So um, unless and until 
academics, investors, practitioners come up with a good way to actually value that premium, it seems to me very difficult to invest in separate stocks and uh, as opposed to just going into index. Mm -hmm. That's sort of my little view on stock picking. Okay. As far as the uh, macro environment, I think uh, watching the tapering is going to be critical. Mm. Right? Uh, and past examples or, or history has sort of shown that the Fed tends to overshoot one way or the other overstays its welcome in uh, having low interest rates and then once in a while that you know that was decades ago overshooting uh, increase in, in interest rates have they learned are they much more subtle in managing rates I, I don't know so I guess my my answer is I would uh, you know you got to know your limitations and mine is to give advice on the direction of the market I fair enough. You know, I'd rather, I'd rather make sure. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else? What, what on the on the distress? If there was another distress cycle, are there any particular industries that you'd be more interested in now than others? Well, like everyone else, I'm trying to figure out crypto. Ugh. Not so much the value of a currency, right? Because we you've you've seen that in many industries where um, there are so many candidates for sort of winning the battle. Is it Bitcoin? Is it Ethereum, there are tons of others. I don't know. And it's not so interesting to me to know whether it's worth 50000 or or 100000 What's really interesting to me are the applications and particularly what uh, people call DeFi and how it could utterly transform the finance industry, the trading industry, you know, thinking about everything from shortening uh, settlements of trades uh, being able to have options of any strike, any length, um, you know, and with a lot of liquidity, uh, it really has the potential of making uh, instruments a lot more liquid, a lot of a lot more customizable. Uh, it's uh, of course there are regulations issues with it, so that's. That's very interesting to me. And then the distress cycle is super interesting to me in that um, you have tons and tons of assets being raised mm -hmm. against a, a, a somewhat uh, small uh, number of bankruptcies, particularly the large bankruptcies are really seldom. Hertz was one of the biggest and it's, it was something like, I don't know, I want to say 20, 30 billion. It's, it's puny if you think of Lehman Brothers and Washington mm -hmm. So that's um, that to me plays in the hands of smaller distressed guys, uh, and uh, it was also a very uh, again very short period of distress and one where um, the strategic plays have changed. So players who are able to drive uh, the dip better in possession financing are really ruling the day these days. Is something that we hadn't seen in, in previous cycles. Mm -hmm. So these developments are, are interesting. Mm -hmm. Very cool. All right, Dominique, in closing, let's talk about how people can find your book. I know you have a website. I'll put this all in the show notes as well. Uh, it's distributed by Simon & Schuster. So it's on Amazon in hard copies and uh, in Kindle and in, uh, in different bookstores. 
Mm -hmm. Cool. And what's your website? It's my name, Dominique Miel. Dominique Miel, M-I-E-L-L-E. Which which does not mean honey. No, I wish. Miel does mean honey, but it's spelled differently. But God gave me a different personality, I'm afraid. (laughs) Oh, come on now. That's not fair. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I see you've mastered the art of uh, New York self-deprecation, at least. But yeah, even if you are West Coast. Are you based on the West Coast or no? Yes, I'm based in... And I do think self-deprecation, if there was a, ever a, uh, a, an undervalued uh, asset in the world of hedge, <laughs> that, that is it. Indeed, indeed. Cool. Well, anyway, so thank you so, so much for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed having you in an interesting conversation. Uh, thank you all for listening. And we uh, look forward to speaking to you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time.